Uh, I'm back to having tiring weeks this week, Matthew. Um, it turns out that one of my children was actually a space alien who um, turns out had some sort of superpowers, some kind of superpowers. Um, That's why I don't have kids. Yeah, no, you don't. You don't want to turn out that one of them's a space alien with superpowers. But anyway, I um I it turns out that their their weakness was a five star review given to this podcast. Um and we've had a few of those so far, so I showed showed them the five star reviews and they settled down and it was like a kryptonite and their powers just disappeared and went away. So that was, you know. People underestimate the use of a five-star review and sharing it with their friends, but you know, it could save you from a wretched life of... I don't know what's going on. Um, And you, you've got stuff as well. Stuff that helps. Yeah, I find that when fighting space aliens, joining the Creative Psychopath Facebook group and other assorted social medias uh, will, will do the trick. Yes, yeah, that that's good. Uh, nice bit of social media plug-in there. Um, well, so we don't need to. It, it's 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 Brightburn this week. Um, yeah. Welcome to Creative Psychopaths, a horror movie podcast and the world's premier kitchen for horror sandwiches. What are horror ham- sandwiches? I hear you shout. Well, it's a lovely movie filling surrounded by two slices of chatty, lovely, delicious goodness. My name's Mark, and as always, I'm joined by Matthew. Hello. Hello. How are you this week? I'm not too shabby. We're in, we're in room 101 now. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Yeah, so that's um, you know, think of the things you hate and chuck them in there, uh, like annoying kids or whatever. Um, anyway, this week we're joined by a lovely guest. Oh, a lovely guest. Uh, in Vincent. Hello. Take the pod. Take the pod. Hello there, Mark. Hello, Matthew, and hello, listeners of Creative Psychopaths. Very happy to be here. Long-time listener, first-time appearance. It's a pleasure. Wow, that was quite an introduction for yourself. Well done. Yeah, that's committing. Yeah, Big committed. fun. Yeah, committed to the bit. Um, <laughs> and I appreciate you being a long-term listener, which is good because it means you'll, you won't be expecting too much professionalism um, in this particular podcast. Uh, whatever it is we do here. Uh, anyway, yeah, so you're here. You're here in the 101st episode, which is good. Uh, we, we, yeah, that's 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 doing pretty well. Hundred and one, yeah. and uh, yeah, you've done a you've done a century's worth, as it were. Um, if one was playing cricket, which we're not, but it's still a good number to have reached. So well done, both of you. Thank you. Yes, we're 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 excited to be here. Um, we certainly weren't expecting to get to this point. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but this is the this is this is one hundred one. Um. Which feels like it's an introduction to something, introduction to podcasting, uh, badly. And 
Normally, I have a little story about what I've been doing this week, but um, I can't think of anything, which is a bit rubbish. Anyone else got anything going on? Well, I always have things going on. Uh, it's just, uh, but I don't necessarily imagine that other people will find them interesting. But I'll tell you something that happened to me a few weeks ago, oh. uh, which is sort of horror movie related. Oh, that's I was good. at home. I just, I'd been watching a home invasion horror movie, uh, When a Stranger Calls. And suddenly there was a banging at my door. And I go to my front door, I look through the peephole, and I see a man outside whom I do not recognize, and he's banging on my door again. So I shouted at him, what do you want? And then he went away. But uh, the, the crossover of those two events was kind of interesting. That's crazy stuff, that. And after after after, what do you want, he went, well, I, I don't require anything now I think about it, and off he went. Yeah. Um, well, that it's is smart weird. decisions do uh, do save lives. You know, horror movies need to take note. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do not open the door. I yeah. probably would just open the door. If I was in an actual horror movie, I definitely would die. There's no doubt that I'd be the one opening the door. I'd certainly be the one, the, the slowest one anyway. Um, so I'd be the one getting caught. Sad but true. Sad but true. I, I also... Do have to take issue with the idea that uh, Vincent saying that you have something to say, but you don't think anyone would be interested in listening. You know, if we all kept quiet in that situation, podcasting would be dead as a format. <laughs> that is a very good point. Yes, we are here no. because we like to, because we are making a point of saying things that hopefully other people will find interesting. And for a podcast that's been going now for 101 episodes, clearly we, we've said an awful lot that nobody cares about. <laughs> yes yeah for sure we've said loads nobody cares about but hopefully we've said some things that some people care about um i don't know well right well let's do it then we'll 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 get into the first delicious lovely slice of bread and because we've got a guest we're going to be doing questions questions and maybe even questions oh well uh, whatever you want uh, now all I have to do is find the questions, even though I've asked them quite a lot of times now. I still don't really know what they are. Um, so let's just go in. Start with a couple of questions. Let's say, when did you become a horror fan? And uh, what's the first horror movie you can remember seeing? I'm going to answer those the other way around. Oh, okay. Because I saw horror films before becoming a fan. In fact, quite a long time before. The, I think the first horror I, I remember seeing was a bit of Jaws 3 uh, because I had a recollection of something involving a, a huge shark scaring G was, you know, I don't know, 9 or 10, which is probably when Jaws 3 would have come on television. And it was only earlier this year that I realised that is in Jaws 3 because in that, the shark is like enormous. And there's a point where you see a guy getting eaten from sort of inside the shark's mouth, which as dumb as that movie is, is at least kind of a cool moment. So I was probably about nine or 10 when I saw that and was like, no, thank you. None of that. And I didn't see the original Jaws until I was you know, 20. But I think the first movie I tried seeing that for me worked as a horror film was Ghostbusters, uh, which I... I saw, again, when it was on TV, probably uh, around 88, 89, when I was uh, 9 or 10, 
and it scared the crap out of me, specifically the point when Sigourney Weaver's armchair attacks her. And I was like, no, I'm checking out. And I had this unfortunate thing of not being able to sleep when something scared me. I didn't even get as far as the nightmares. I was just kept awake by my by my brain going over these things again and again. Then I made the slight tactical error the following day of mentioning this at school. And children, being the cruel bastards they are, were like, oh no, what's wrong with you? Ghostbusters not scary, it's funny. In terms of actually watching a movie in its entirety, I'm genuinely not sure. I know when I was in my early teens, I saw a few Stephen King adaptations like The Shining and Misery and Dolores Claiborne, but I don't recall them being particularly scary. And having revisited them since then, I do find them scary now. <laughs> I'd say the first horror film I saw in a cinema context was Scream, which I saw in my first week as an undergraduate student. Uh, so when I was 18, so I saw Scream at a university screening and that was, didn't particularly scare me, but it was certainly a lot of fun. Now, I've been a film fan, a huge film fan for decades, certainly since my mid to late teens. And yeah, since then, I've, I, I have a PhD in film studies and have written and published on film extensively. But horror was just something I sort of watched some horror movies along with other movies, wasn't really tracking down horror specifically. Until... In answer to your other question, when did I really become a horror fan with a capital H and maybe a capital F? It was 2018. And it was thanks to a horror podcast called The Evolution of Horror that perhaps um, you two and some of our listeners are familiar with. Not that I'm promoting another podcast, though I might later. So listening to that as well as others later on, I saw it was podcasts like this, which gave me more interest and made me consume horror more and more as a dedicated fan to the point where now I've been to Fright Fest several times and I make a point of checking out new horror films and I particularly enjoy coming on horror podcasts. So yeah, my uh, my horror journey is perhaps not a typical one, but then again, I've never done anything the typical way. Wow. Um, that was lovely. Yeah, it was. Uh it's almost, I don't feel I've got anything to say back. Aside from, I will I will say that people underestimate how scary Ghostbusters actually is. Uh, especially if you're sort of eight or nine years old. Um, Sigourney Weaver freaks me out in that movie um, when she starts getting all weird and possessed. And I don't like that fridge that's got like a, it's got a bridge in it or something like that. That scares the crap out of me too. Um, so yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a bit scared of Ghostbusters. Um, well, I wasn't a bit scared. I was terrified. <laughs> well, I look I, at it now and I think that's really kind of naff. But it's, um, um, it's got moments. It's certainly got scary moments. So I'm, I'm fascinated in, in the way that you've sort of uh, gone through your you know, your, your horror history and where you, you found scares compared to, to not being scared. Uh, I would say it's a matter of thinking about it and gaining an understanding. Um, and a lot of that will come with maturity. I think I'll use The Shining as an example. I first saw that when I was maybe 13 or 14. 
and I didn't really get it. Um, and then not long after that, I would have seen The Shinning from The Simpsons. And then I, s I remember seeing The Shining again on a, interestingly, in a uh, in a university screening again. And that time being on a bigger screen and with the surround sound, it made a lot more of an impression on me. And then and subsequently, I saw it in a cinema and it's even more effective then. So I think it was a matter of partly better viewing conditions, but also having, you know, being older, being more mature, having more of an understanding of, oh, hang on a minute. This is not throwing generally the horror stuff at me, but it is enveloping me. And that's what I think I found most unsettling. And if I think about the horror that scares me now, it is that that I find particularly um, enclosing. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I was lucky enough to see The Shining on the, on the big screen in a cinema the other day, and I I know exactly what you mean by that, and that it, it does it adds so much to it. Just with the again, just your know, big picture and surround sound. Uh, yeah, I think the sound is a, particularly a big factor. Certainly, in the case of The Shining, and it's not the only one. When you when something is that when this is a very loud and b you can't control the sound you can't turn down the, the sound in the cinema it makes all the difference you know i've never actually considered that but yeah it, it's a very yeah it's a, it seems very obvious when you say it out loud well i mean there are accounts this like i think you mentioned it on um your halloween episode that when john carpenter first showed halloween to studio execs it was without a score and they were like yeah wh whatever and then showed it again later on with the score and they were like oh my god that's terrifying <laughs> yeah no that wouldn't have been us we haven't done halloween oh sorry too many <laughs> podcasts i'm mixing them up <laughs> you haven't done how you've made it to 101 episodes and not done halloween that's kind of impressive in its own right oh we've done we've done halloween films we've done Done a couple from the franchise, uh, maybe just bonus episodes. Uh, I know Halloween Kills was a very early episode that I was. Yes, I remember that one. Uh, but no, we've. Uh, I mean, we're recording this before uh, before they've come out, but our our top tens uh, will, will have been listened to by most people. Uh, I hope now, uh, and we we realised that there are quite a lot of very uh, important classics that we've, we've not touched yet. So episodes uh, 100 to 200 should have some some pretty heavy hitters to look at. Yeah. Really good. And now yeah. you know a bit of trivia about Halloween, well, which you may have known anyway. Yeah, I think I did. Yeah, well, we'll write that down yeah. to include. Yeah, well, well, yeah, well, it makes us, it'll make us sound smart, yeah. No, well, I mean, I, I, I could introduce, say why we didn't do them, and it was because, when I initially started this podcast, you know, when I first started it, I wasn't sure about what the direction was. And I, I didn't want to ruin some of the classic movies by, um, you know, not giving them the time uh, that they deserved. So, you know, it started off that way. And then just over time, as guests have come along, we've chosen what they wanted to do. And then we've had themes that haven't quite hit those things. So we just... Um, you know, there's a lot of horror movies out there, so we'll get to them all. Well, I don't know if we'll get to them all. Uh, oh, I tried. 
Yeah, well, certainly die trying. That's the spirit. Yes. <laughs> um, so, what then is the scariest horror movie? The Descent. Speaking of feeling enclosed, uh, The Descent is a movie that I saw in the cinema in 2005 when it came out. Right. Within the first couple of minutes, I was you know, rigid in my seat. As it <laughs> progressed, I got more and more rigid and not in a sexual way. And then at a moment that I suspect would be the same for many people, there's a point in that where I screamed out loud and I have never previously or since done that in a cinema. So yeah, hands down, The Descent is my scariest horror movie. Wow, yeah, an actual out loud scream. Yeah. You know, I'm- yeah, I've, I've told this story before, uh, but I, I, I like it, so I'm telling it again. I watched this with my, my other half and I knew that that bit was coming and she didn't. Uh, so I just had the joy of watching her reaction to it rather than the scene itself. Uh, and she also gave uh, a physical yelp as well. So you're not alone. So effective. Yeah, it's... um. I don't know. Have, have we had that as the answer before? So scariest movie? I think we have. I mean, it's, it's come up in questions. I can't remember if it's this specific one yeah. before. Uh, but it, it's definitely been mentioned by a lot of people, so I, it probably has. I would think it just it just makes me think that that might be one of the right answers to this question because I don't know anyone who's seen that film and could come away from it saying that oh, it's fine, it's not scary at all because it just is, isn't it? It just is really scary. Um, hmm. Potentially one of the right answers for the future. Yeah, I am honoured. Yeah. Um, so, well, let's, let's move it about a bit. Um, so do you have a favorite franchise? Well, there's a thing I could go back and forth on a lot of it because some franchises, they have good installments and they have weaker installments. Like I love, uh, Alien and Aliens and I quite like Alien 3 and I'm a defender of Prometheus but I don't like Alien Resurrection. I don't like Alien Covenant. So I think that's a patchy franchise at best. Um, I have watched all of the Halloween franchise and that's really patchy. Same, I've watched the whole of Saw and that's really boring. So if I were to say a franchise, I'd love to be some, saying something, you know, that was different and unusual. However, I think I'm going to have to be the basic bitch and say the most consistently enjoyable franchise for me is Scream. Yeah, we've had that a few times. I, I mean, you won me over anyway because uh, because of your Saw comment, so that's fine. Um, well, describing Saw as boring. Yes, yeah, very much so. Um, I just don't like that friend. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna keep repeating myself. Um, but yeah, you're right, and I think I think I've been convinced over the how many. F- well, 101 episodes that Scream probably is the most consistent franchise. Because even the third one, which is probably the weakest, is still, it's still got, it's still got redeeming qualities, I think. Yeah. Uh, even if it's just more tongue in cheek. Um, plus, Jane Silent Bobber in it, as I recall. That's true. They are. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Scream for sure. Yeah, they, they, it's got the the highest floor of a of a horror franchise, I would say, uh, except Evil Dead, which is my pick. 
Yeah, that's another one, though. I think that Evil Dead doesn't have any weak films in it either. Um, that is a fair point. I've only seen each of the Evil Deads once, and the third, fourth, and fifth I saw for the first time earlier this year in preparation for Evil Dead Rise coming out. I finished the franchise. But it, that's something I think I'd be happy to go back to. So, you know, ask me this in a, in the future. And maybe I'll say, yeah, actually, I think I prefer The Evil Dead to Scream. Or maybe not. Who knows? Well, either of those answers are lovely. Um, right. So um, are there any movies that you think need a sequel or ones that need to stop making sequels? Okay. I'll answer both of those. Mm. Um, stop making Saw sequels, please. Yes. As I say, I saw the whole franchise in the space of a month. If there's another one, I will probably go to see it out of morbid curiosity Please let us let there be no more sore. I saw enough. There will be. I know, I know. Um, and in terms of a sequel I'd like to see, uh, this might be a bit of a of an odd one. I'd like to see a sequel to 2015's The Invitation. I think you've mentioned before there are two films called The Invitation. There's a good one and a bad one. I've not seen the more recent one, which I believe is the bad one. But I have seen the earlier one, which I think is the good one. Am I right? Yeah. Uh, yes, I, I believe that is the case. Yes. Okay. Well, The Invitation is a film that features a cult and, uh, an, in, and a, an invitation, indeed a set of invitations to this cult. And at the end, I think it still leaves a lot of unresolved questions. And I think it would be really interesting to delve into those questions um, I don't know, in The Invited or something like that. Or yeah. The RSVP. Hmm. I think it's a rare occasion that I would disagree with a guest, but uh, I think in that particular case, I think it leaves it exactly where it needs to leave it. I think the questions that it leaves you with are exactly the vibe that it wants to give you, and I'm not, not really sure what else you, you get from it from, from, from there, but... Um, I mean, these are obviously our answers, so I shouldn't. Um, but that's a, that is a hell of a movie, The Invitation. I watched it um, recently, um, probably for the same reason you might have watched it recently. Um, but yeah, um, I suppose, I mean, with these things, I'm quite happy to see sequels to everything. Uh <laughs> Insane, insane that in sort of going against what I've just said. Oh, how happily watch sequels to everything. As, as a horror fan, just churn out the sequels. I don't really, I'm not really bothered. It doesn't ruin the original movies and, um, you know, it gives us more stuff to talk about. No, oh, that's uh, true. Yeah. So, um, what should we do next? Um, best kill. Well, I went back and forth on this a lot I um, when I was sort of preparing this because having listened to your previous episodes, I knew what questions were coming. Despite that, some of these were still quite tricky to work out. Um, I nearly went for uh, one of the kills in The Descent. I thought long and hard about maybe it would be the emergence of the alien in Alien. But actually, I'm going to go back to the one film I've already said a few times, Um I'm going to go for the best kill is The Shining because that first viewing when I was in my early teens, although I didn't get much of the film really, the point when Jack emerges out of nowhere and kills 
um, Scatman Crothers character, who annoyingly are just uh, Halloran, Dick Halloran, and kills him. Where you know, spoiler. <laughs> um, at the point that the axe just comes out of nowhere, and I remember very clearly saying at the age I was, like, oh, right in the heart. <laughs> and I think that's just a stunning kill. It's a perfect jump scare. It's yeah, you know, your feet. It's visceral. It's stri- it strikes you just as it strikes Dick. And the fact that it is, and one thing, at least if it's right as it's right in the heart, it would be quick. But I'm pretty sure it wasn't painless. Yeah, yeah. And of course, that's the only on-screen kill in The Shining. Of course, yeah. It's so, memorable. It's something of a twist as well. That one it really catches you out of nowhere because he he travels all that way to save the kid and just gets nowhere with it. And he's your he's your sort of hero, heroic character. We're like, oh, he's on his way. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. Oh, he's dead. Um. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, I I must agree with that. And I think as well as not just for the for the kill and, and how good it's it's quite interesting in that uh, it's a kill that pretty much only exists in order to ramp up the tension elsewhere as well. Uh, there's, there's no other reason for it is that uh, it's just to say that one small channel of uh, of hope is extinguished as quickly as it came out yeah <laughs> yeah no you, that was a good that is a good choice yeah yeah oh good I aim to please uh, now let's see what have I got left um well, should we do standout effects, and then uh, we'll move into our filling? Okay. Uh, well, having heard obviously you know previous episodes and you know, um, other discussions elsewhere, I've actually got a bit tired of uh, the insistence that oh, practical effects are so much better than uh, digital. So I thought lot thought carefully about. So what's a really good therefore more contemporary, digital effect. Because I suppose the difference is practical effects will tend to be made for that specific sequence, whereas digital effects can be reused. And within a generally digital appearance, they don't necessarily stand out. But I thought of one that I think stands out wonderfully, not least because it's presented in such a way that you can't see it terribly clearly, but what you can see feels very wrong. And indeed, again, within the context of the sequence, what you hear makes a difference too. So I want to champion the bear-type creature in Annihilation. That is a really effective <laughs> effective um, effect that is digitally animated, and I think it does a brilliant job of really showing... Of, of, highlighting just how dangerous this environment is and how menacing the creatures within it are. That's my answer. The bear monster creature thing in Annihilation. Those are some, yeah. that's a standout effect for me. While you were saying that and, and championing digital, that scene sprung to mind. Uh, there you go. I, I don't know if it's just because it you, you dropped enough hints in there for me to, to pick it up, but... 
I, I was delighted when you said that because I fully agree with you. That sequence is incredible in every single way. Good. Oh, I'm, glad, I'm glad you agree. What do you think, Mark? I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to have a rare occasion for me and say I haven't seen it. Fair enough. Uh, well, put it on your list. Yeah. If it's not yeah, there so, already. But, uh, a few weeks ago, I was uh, on the uh, the Movie Duel podcast as a guest, and I was asked to choose what my favorite uh, liminal space horror film is. And Annihilation was my choice for that because it, uh, we weren't allowed to pick The Shining, just in case anyone was uh, <laughs> shouting at me for that. Uh, but yeah, Annihilation was my my choice for that, and the bear scene is just the the scariest moment from that film. And you you have to have a good effect in order for that to happen because if you don't, it would just all pretty much fall apart. Mm. And yeah, they they absolutely do. I think Alex Garland is a man who does take quite a lot of care with things like that. You know, Ex Machina specifically, there's a lot of digital effects going on there that all also look brilliant. This is true. So it's yeah, digital's not the problem. Uh, it's the the way that it's it's rushed through or or hasn't had the the appropriate funding for it to, in a budget. Uh, so yes, we're right. We should champion them more. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Well, it's downloaded now. I've found it on Netflix. Downloaded, read it a watch. I don't have it. Don't like having gaps in my knowledge. So um, that'll be next on my list. <laughs> Lovely. Also, the book by Jeff Vandermeer is fantastic too. Right. So now it's time to get into the lovely. Delicious filling, movie filling of this week, which is uh, Brightburn from 2019. Yes. Which is uh, directed by David Yaravesky. I think that's how you say it. Um, Written down only three members of the cast, really, because it is sort of really carried by the three. So uh, Jackson A. Dunn as Brandon Breyer, Elizabeth Banks as Tori Breyer, and David Denman as Kyle Breyer. Now, I wouldn't normally write much more of this information down, but I have written down, of course, that this was produced by James Gunn and written by his brother Brian and his cousin Mark. Um, Now, one of the interesting things I found out researching this is that they were going to give this massive promotion at at a Comic-Con, but this was during the time when James Gunn got fired by Disney, you know, for that brief amount of time. Um, so it didn't get quite the promotion that it was expected to get. Um, I mean, in terms of budget and, you know, box office, like a lot of horror films that make it to the cinema, it it, it beat its budget. Because um, for one reason or another, horror films are often made cheaply. Um, I think this one was somewhere between seven and twelve million. It didn't actually say exactly how much it was. It's quite a big difference, actually, isn't it? <laughs> but uh, I mean, I, it, that difference is is a figure I would very much like to have in my bank account. Yeah, for sure. Me too. For sure. But um, yeah, those are some of the things I've thought of. But before we get into it, why did you choose this one? 
I chose this uh, film because it's one that I find continually fascinating and I have uh, written a couple of online blog pieces about it and I wanted the opportunity to have an in-depth chat about it. The reason it's particularly interesting to me is, as I said, I am now a horror fan. I am also a big superhero fan. I love the event. I love Marvel. I love DC. And this was some, and I also have a lot of my uh, research. um, I'm an academic and and I publish on this sort of thing. And one thing I'm especially interested in is genre and the way genres work together. And what I love about Brightburn, I love many things about it, but one in particular is that it knows its genres really well. It does everything you'd expect in a superhero movie, but gives it this horror slant. It's a superhero narrative with a horror tone and a horror mood. And what I think it does in doing so, it firstly provides plenty of, you know, scary set pieces as well as some pretty gnarly violence while also echoing many of the tropes of the superhero genre that have that has developed so effectively over the past well all told uh, over 40 years but especially in the last two decades mm. the well the decade and a bit leading up to its release and effectively what we have here is uh if two consecutive films by Richard Donner had a baby, i.e. The Omen and Superman, the movie, if they had a baby, it would be Brightburn. And I find that level of genre knowingness, that level of playing with genre tropes, fascinating and very enjoyable. It's one of the few films that I only saw for the first time. uh, I didn't see it in theatrical release. I saw it in 2020 on streaming. And I've gone back to it, and I don't tend to go back to films that much. I would rather see something new. Mm. But I've watched Brightburn repeatedly in recent years, and I keep finding it very enjoyable. Furthermore, I think it not only plays with genre tropes, it also manages to subvert and skewer and twist around some of the potentially problematic ideology that you can find in the superhero genre and the horror lens is a really good way to do that. That's why I want to talk about it. So, going to be an interesting chat then. Um, I mean, and and you said you said that. So, um, essentially, what we've got here is Superman. Um, a child lands in an in a, in a spaceship, and as he matures, he gets his powers. Um, and so, essentially, we see the character of Clark Kent, really. Um, but whereas Clark Kent is always, um, and there have been a lot of what ifs, what if tales to show sort of what if Clark Kent had, had landed elsewhere. And, and they, they, they tend to say that, you know, sort of Carlisle, Clark Kent, whatever you, whatever you want, you know, it was very much short of, um, not, not, I don't want to say nature versus nurture, but in his particular case, he it was the nurture. He was brought up by two good people and became a good person himself. Whereas this movie doesn't do that. It it it, it says, um, you know, he was brought up by good people, but yet he couldn't subvert his own nature, which is uh, essentially, well. 
essentially he's also uh he's also goku as well who was originally sent you know as as a saiyan to destroy earth but i think he got bonked on the head or something so uh, i can't remember exactly how that works uh so yeah there's a there's a whole heap going on in terms of that um i mean as we get as we get through the film i i i don't personally know whether it does enough with that um to to be like a classic or anything but uh what do you think matthew yeah i'm sorry i always enjoyed listening to you both speak then <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah i think uh to jump into probably my, my biggest criticism of the film actually uh which feels a bit cruel straight out again but it, it felt to me like the film was kind of fighting i don't want to say with itself necessarily but uh fighting to to kind of uh portray what it what it wanted to do you know with regards to that that superman origin story uh because it's i kind of got the impression that it it was like mark alluded to that this idea of you know what happens you know the you know, superman is this dangerous character and he is stopped from being the destruction of the world because he is is taught from a young age that what earth is is worthwhile for you know with the the goodness of his of his adopted family and i think that this film it it feels a, a lot of it is trying to say what if that happens but it doesn't matter you know and and it just causes destruction anyway regardless of what the parents do you know so that that nature nurture thing which i think is it's quite important that the there's the scene with uh you know like the spaceship calling to him you know to to sort of push aside the the good influence from from his parents but then as you see that the film progress you fall into this traps that uh the 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 love that he's shown from his parents is it's it's unconditional in the worst way, you know. Is that uh, Elizabeth Banks' character tries to basically hand wave away everything that is is showing up and, and highlighting the sun as a as a danger, uh, while uh, his dad is fully aware of everything that's going on, but he's handling it in such a bad way. Mm. So I I kind of feel that it's it's confused with what it's trying to say with regards to to that element of the of the you know the the Superman origin. May I offer an alternative? Of course. Okay. I think it, um, on one level, yes, that makes a lot of sense. In that, so this is saying that what the guy uh, uh, Brandon is intrinsically in scare quotes evil and no matter what his nurture was his nature would always win out i would like to think about that there is a 
a different logic at work here. And I think this is one of the aspects where the film is showing something very interesting and quite satirical. Now, horror movie monsters often have tragic or violent backstories. Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, Jack Torrance, Norman Bates. But as you've said, Brandon is raised by his loving and supportive parents, Tori and Kyle. Now, as you've said, of course, this is the parallels, uh, the raising of Kal-El, Superman. But, and a key point is that both Clark and Brandon are raised in the heartland of America, and they are instilled with values and beliefs. And the logic would be that he should be a good, caring person. And yet what we see is someone who is arrogant, entitled, and violent. And I think what Brightburn is doing here is that he's exposing the central premise of the superhero genre to be wildly optimistic and naive. If a person acquires superpowers or a superpowered extraterrestrial comes to Earth and is raised in American society, and I'm repeating America here for very deliberate reason, but what if all the good old American values don't make them into an upstanding citizen? What if they embody greed, entitlement, and do whatever they like simply because they can? Or does that actually sound so different to good old American values after all? So across the film, there are references to archetypal American ideology and some of the problems with that. The first time we see Brandon behave superpowered and entitled comes at his 12th birthday when he is given a gun and Brandon slams his fist on the table. He disrupts the local electricity. Now, a gun is idolized in American culture and it instigates violence. Well, there's a shocker. And later on, uh, we see that uh, uh, Tory tells Brandon that uh, Brandon is a miracle and he came for a reason and he's special and will do incredible things. Now, these might seem like good things to tell a child, but they turn out to be true in ways that are destructive and horrific. Brandon gets more dangerous and uh, the, uh, the parents argue about what to do. And Kyle says that this is on us. So he's displaying this traditional American individualistic bootstrap mentality, the man of the house who will take responsibility and doing what he knows to be right. Oh, and he uses a gun. Well, that didn't work because Brandon's impervious to bullets. Um, and so what we've got here is, I think, a really interesting counterpoint in contemporary discourse. We've got a powerful and righteous individual of which the cinematic superhero is one. And the figure of the superhero represents this strong, independent American male who resists the dangers of threat in America. Now, contemporary myths is what superheroes do, and this is all emphasizing the cult of the individual, the individual's moral compass. And if we believe something is right, we should ignore other concerns. And at several points in the film, Brandon says that he knows he's special, he's better. There's a point where he's speaking to a school counselor and there's a poster on the wall, it's a bit on the nose maybe, saying, the world is your oyster. Yeah, it is his. And this idea of a strong, independent American male, a figure who, let's not forget, contributes to racial discrimination, police violence, the restriction of women's bodily rights, insurrection. I think it's insignificant. This film came out in 2019, okay? We're talking here about a spoiled, entitled, narcissistic individual who's in possession of great power. Does this sound at all like 
the president of the United States in 2019. Yes, I think it does. So these traditional American values can produce entitlement and savagery and violence in this almost sanctified figure of the white male. So that is what I think is going on here. The, the, um, the narrative aspects that you described, the generic tension, I think is there because the film is, and I'm not, you know, I mean, maybe this is me reading it into it rather than the writers putting it there. But I think that that's what is expressing this deeply troubled, this deeply um, kind of, uh, dangerous um, sanctity that is at the heart of um, American culture and fulfills the the superhero genre. And that's what makes Brightburn this very interesting genre piece and you know piece of contemporary satire. Sorry, I went off on one a bit there. No, it's all right. I was just thinking the whole time. I think you might be a bit too smart for us. <laughs> uh, um, no, I, I I fully take on on what you were saying. I think as well there is, there is that other uh, that other element of it, which uh, just to add add to it is another early point of uh, Brandon discovering his powers is uh, him being told that. Uh, it's okay to go after girls, and yeah, good point. He, you know, he, again, he doesn't respect the boundaries of uh, of the female character. No, just, just to add to that, and again, another another Trumpian uh, element there. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. But I I do like uh, what you said that it, it highlights the uh, the naivety of superheroes as a concept uh, because. I mean, frankly, that for the most part is it, it is superheroes in general, isn't it? That this idea that if if we put tremendous power in the hands of people, they will just be good. <laughs> I think just just as an aside, I think that's why people gravitate towards Spider Man as a superhero uh, because that that struggle is shown and and the villains in that that franchise are basically the same as him but don't have that struggle so i think just to sideline us a bit yeah there's a particularly nice uh, reference i think to um the to the type of uh, world that brightburn's presenting you mentioned the um character of a girl that brandon goes after um caitlin played by emmy hunter and the and, uh, in a school PE lesson, uh, Brandon, uh, oh, sorry, before Brandon goes and uh, visits her, her, her at home, which she did not request. And but when he turns up, she's writing a school essay. Now, this is after the PE scene, which is the, one of the first moments of proper violence when Caitlin goes to help Brandon up and he crushes her hand and wrist and we next see her in a cast before Brandon uninvitedly comes to visit her and she's actually writing an essay and you can see on her laptop the title of that essay is The Decline of Truth and Justice in the Modern World. It might as well have been The Decline of Truth, Justice in the American Way. Uh, it's it was really like a heavy nice. subject to 12-year-olds. That's, that's, I think, is a, is a more subtle point than, say, the poster that says the world is your oyster. I, th I find that a very nice nod. One of the things I did notice in this is that it does have this um, 
sort of there's a slight idea in there of parental ignorance as well you know which which which, which happens all the time you know there's this one scene where um elizabeth banks character is standing up for brandon despite the fact that he's clearly crushed this girl's hand and she's she's advocating for him having no responsibility for it at all and um you know, it sort of it sort of makes me think of um, sort of in the real world when you know parents have children with drug problems and stuff like that, and they just it doesn't always happen, but it does often happen that those things get ignored because they don't want to sort of believe that their children are are doing those particular things. So I sort of um, noticed that as I was going along with it, but um, I think. I think we should uh, we should now though we should dig into what it is like as a horror film. Uh, Agreed. So, essentially, um, do they use the superpowers in this film to make a good horror film? Um, well, let's think about that in terms of set pieces. As we mentioned, the first set piece is where Brandon, well, first demonstration of the power being used on someone else, Brandon crushes Caitlin's uh, arm. Uh, we have seen a couple of other demonstrations, like he can throw, he throws a lawnmower a great distance. And when he puts his hand next to it, um, he, he's not harmed by it. So his skin is clearly uh, almost, well, not entirely, but largely invulnerable. There are... I think in terms of the horror set pieces in this, which are also displays of superpowers, I think are quite commendably horrible. The first really nasty bit after that is a scene where um, Erica, who is Caitlin's mother, she's a waitress, and uh, we and Brandon attacks her, but he attacks her by this is working like you know that horror trope of something thing that is there and then isn't there. Uh, that it is, and that it's bringing in the uncanny sense of something that, you know, what is it? And something out of the corner of your eye, what's been caught in some areas, frame analysis horror, where there's something in the background and you're not really sure about it. And we can hear the sound of Brandon's moving really quickly. And then he, this is happening in a diner where, and I've already forgotten her name, where Erica works and played by Becky Wallstrong. And then Brandon breaks this fluorescent light and she gets a bit of the glass from that in her eye. And yeah. I don't know, I think eye trauma is a common thing that makes people gets people to cringe. It's very, very nasty. And she's sort of having to deal with it. And we see her pull the little shard of glass out of her eye. And then we get her point of view, which is somewhat blood obscured. I think that's really nasty scene. What do you guys think? Yeah, I was I was thinking as well that the that this film trades on its set pieces. Uh, in that scene specifically, I was a big fan of the uh, when when she does pull the the glass out of her eye that we get that very satisfying squirt uh, <laughs> yeah. that comes out with it as well, uh, just to break the tension somewhat. Uh, just a little a little gooey bit in there, uh, but yeah, I like that. It, it it does this this little switch when it goes to the uh, 
once he's pulled the glass armor out, where it moves from uh, this, like you say, framing out this corner of your eye sort of horror, that it continues to do that in these little areas that are obscured by uh, you know, the, sort of the red mist, the, the, the blood in the, you know, the part of the eye that the, the character can't see from. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a, a really, a really nice way of doing it in that it's, it's shots that should by rights be very obvious, very easy to see, but because they're obscured by this lack of vision, that that it gives this little, it gives a little extra layer of what can be achieved for the horror. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't find any of the particular horror set pieces in this do anything for me, really. Like, there's a lot of what I what 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 you're talking, what you've been talking about. It's all very, um, I don't want to say generic, but it's um, there's you know, given the concept of this movie, there could have been they they could have done more with it and. And I really think that there's only one kill in this movie that really plays with what they've got in terms of a super powered, you know, slasher sort of thing. This this kill here is could have fit in any particular slasher movie. And while there is good parts to it, it doesn't it it it's not doing anything original or you know. It just doesn't do anything for me in terms of that. Um, That's a fair point. In terms of, as you say, doing something with the idea of a superhero slasher, is the scene that does do something for you the next kill involving a truck and a steering wheel? Yeah, yeah. But again, so, I mean, essentially what happens there is um, there's a thing that happens earlier in 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 this where is Anne who is a teacher at the school um Brandon showed up to her house and he's messing around with um what essentially are movement sensors in the in the house or at least it detects what's going on in in the garden and I, what I thought was really strange about that is that if they were going to do that usually you would find in a horror film they would allude to that um like that it was a thing so it would catch you off guard later on but then but it does it's it's got this this movement center in the house that just comes from nowhere and it's like i don't know what that's doing aside from saying there's someone in the garden when there isn't um and i thought that i thought that was a bit strange because it would normally they would normally go it would normally give you a nod to that to say, mm, expect this to come back later. Um, I thought it was very strange. Um, but what, what you, but uh, going to the kill you're talking about is obviously, uh, it's not exact, is it technically his uncle or is it? Yeah, his... um, we see um, yeah, the, right, the school yeah. counselor is Mary Lee. She's uh, Brandon's aunt because she's Tori's sister. And then so her husband, Noah. Um, is yeah, Brandon's uncle, right by marriage. It is his uncle, yeah. So, um, you know, essentially he, well, he he picks up the 
picks up the truck, drop, drops it on its front, and uh, the guy's face drives into the steering wheel and essentially pulls his jaw off his face. Yeah. Um, and it looks really great. It looks it it looks great. And I think um, this is like what I was saying before. This is where they actually take advantage of what they've got. Um, and I must say, based on what I was saying to you about the uh, budget, even even if it was as high as twelve million, effects wise, this works really well. It's as good as not as good as superhero movies can be, but you know. It's better than, say, an episode of Smallville or something like that. Um, so, yeah. Well, you, you can see the budget on the screen, which is more than could be said for, for some superhero properties we've had recently. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Which you quite literally couldn't see. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm actually going to, uh, to, to go one further, because I think the, uh, the final sort of set piece uh i thought was was quite a good demonstration of the uh, superpowers in the traditional horror format because you know we 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 have a sort of nuts and bolts uh your know, stalking scene don't we towards the end uh with you know like a character following uh, our, our heroine uh but instead of sort of stalking and, and hiding in the shadows for it. He's literally just flying through walls and disappearing uh, with the threat that you know he could be there any second. Uh, so it's not so much that the character's hidden, it's that he's he's there eventually. You know, he's there, he's going to be there any second. Uh, so I think it, it used the superhero powers quite well there. Yeah, and it and the matter of again the, the the appearance, the sudden appearance and disappearance, because there's a, a particular moment when first Tory and then one of the um, cops, yeah, deputy heirs, heirs, um, they're in a corridor of the house. This is the Briars' home, their homestead, their extremely um, middle, uh, you know, cent- middle of America type of homestead uh, house, and. They look down the corridor and the camera does as well. And there's Brandon just floating outside the window and then he's gone. And then we cut back or swing back and there he is. He's right behind you in the same way that someone, something might appear in Insidious or Nightmare on Elm Street or uh, Sinister. He just appears there and, yeah, as you say, he's flying through the house and uh, yeah, break, uh, smashing huge holes in it. And then the point when he kills Deputy Ayres, we see her slammed. And yes, we see her actually obscured because we're a camera is aligned with Tori, who's sort of hiding under the bed, and we can see Ayres being smashed up and down and up and down against the ceiling. And then she's thrown into the room, and she falls down, and she's been broken, you know, all over, and she expires just like that. And you're right, you know, a lot like somebody in a. Uh, in a horror movie, it, well, this is a horror movie. In a, in it, many a horror movie, seeing somebody who's been severely, who's been beaten to death, essentially. But of course, she has been beaten to death by someone with super strength, um, even more so than the super strength of, say, a Jason or a Michael. 
Yeah. Um, well, are there any other parts that you want to pick out as opposed to the ending or the... I mean, the death of the dad is very superhero-based. It's pretty much... Absolutely, yeah. It does the eye beams right through dad's head. Heat vision <laughs> to the face. Um, yeah. You know, and it, 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 it does ask those questions like... You know, like it's wanting to, which is what if Superman just did whatever the fuck he wanted to do, which... Um, and I can't ever think in any other what-if storylines that he was ever written like that. Um, there's one the, the, there's one of the most famous ones where he, land, he landed in Soviet Russia. But even, yeah. that, even then, he's not... You know, he's quite... I'd say he's maniacal, but he's not... He's not particularly violent in that way. And even the... Even the one where he's on, uh, I think event, he, he lands on the um, apocalypse and he becomes like the right-hand man of dark side. He's still sort of, um, I'd say, never really particularly like high levels of violence. So it is it is interesting to do that in this because um, I, I can't think in a storyline where they've ever really done that before. Um, and nine times out of ten in a what-if storyline or a, I think they're Elseworlds technically in DC. DC, he usually ends up as Superman, traditional Superman at the end. Regardless, even in the British one, he becomes um, Superman right at the very end. Um, um, so that, sorry, go on. Um, although there is the one speeding bullets where he becomes Batman, and he's a incredibly violent Batman. <laughs> well, that's Batman for you. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I think an important thing to note is that, of course, um, Superman tends to get to adulthood or at least into you know, slightly older, whereas I think it's important that Brandon, we, most of the events of the film happen in just you know the, the week of his 12th birthday, and I think that's significant. You mentioned, uh, Matthew, you would... You describe you were asked to describe um, your favorite horror uh, horror movie, Liminal Space, and liminality is absolutely key. Uh, it's key to the superhero in general. All superhero figures are liminal, and you know whether they're part man, part machine. In the case of Iron Man, or you know, a god who is on Earth. In the case of Thor, and in the case of uh, Brandon, he is yeah, liminal like. Superman or Thor, because he's an extraterrestrial who is on Earth living among humans, but he's also almost a teenager. So he's in this weird stage between childhood and adolescence, and that liminal state is one of that. That is where um, the superhero identity is constructed, and it is often where many a, a figure of horror appears. I think that when we're talking about the development of the superhero genre more broadly, one of the absolute key uh, texts in that development is Blade, who is a figure who is uh, both human but also vampire. So he's absolutely you know, there between the two. That is um, a liminal figure. And we find the same things with somebody like um, Freddy Krueger. You know, he is both, you know, of the uh, of the dreamscape and of the realscape. 
if you will, realscape, is that a word? Well, reality, <laughs> shall we say, dream and reality. And I think that's something which has to be noted then, and it's absolutely uh, central to what we've got here. Yeah, okay, other ones would be Norman Bates. He's both Norman and his mother. Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, they could be human, they could be supernatural. Um, vampires themselves are both living and dead. And in the case of Brandon Breyer, a.k.a. Brightburn, he is this figure who is between different stages um, of development and is, you know, doing... And, you know, is there's also, going back to the idea of the kind of assumed morality, that we always have this assumption that you know, those with superpowers will do things for the right reasons. But I think it's notable that what is right in the case of something like Brightburn is being challenged. It's saying, well, it's not quite as straightforward as what's right or wrong, because in this respect, perhaps somebody who is powerful should simply be in charge, should do what he wants. I mean, if there are no consequences, why the hell not? I think that's one of the things that Brightburn does so well. It says, yeah, you've got powers that makes you feel entitled and you'll do what you want. And you could argue there's sort of an excuse for it in the case of Brandon because he does not know better. But somehow I doubt that as he got older, he would have changed that perspective. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I this is uh, also making me rewatch to uh, to rewatch Chronicle because I think this is a film that that does this uh, in more of an action setting, doesn't it? it? Asks a lot of those similar questions. Yeah, and I think the tagline for Chronicle was "With great power comes no responsibility." Different <laughs> <laughs> Spider Man. Yeah, I mean, I suppose. I mean, ultimately, if you want to see a child with superheroes, uh, with superpowers, who is the worst, then just take a look at Homelander. Really, go watch the boys, and away you go. Um, he is, to me, he's the ultimate. Well, he's well. He's just awful, an awful person. Um, Would you describe the boys as horror, though? Uh, I th I think Homelander is is actually quite a horror character. Um, I he he's probably one of the scariest characters to get on. You know. TV at the moment when when he has his moments when he's being himself with people and and not showing the face of it he's he's genuinely like really intimidating which is something okay. that, that this film never gets across you know, Brandon it, so you mentioned a horror character there does the boys as a whole I confess I've not watched any of it but do, does the boys as a whole offer what you might consider a horror tone or a horror mood it's very violent um well so is some so is your standard action movie so is you know die hard or um oh no uh, i mean i mean extraction i mean horror level violent okay <laughs> not just gun shooting it's like um it's certainly worth a watch anyway and i think oh yeah, yeah. I, I think I, don't if, doubt it. I think if you appreciate a a character like that i think you would uh, you'd really appreciate homelander and well, I, I would argue that the boys uh, puts it, it, it puts itself in the category where 
it it parodies reality because the horror of reality is too much to face. Uh, so I think I think it's it's horror in that respect, in that uh, you know if, if should this be real or should this be slightly less ridiculous than it's presented that the truth would would show and we we would all be worried for our lives we'd all be like uh the brief appearance by michael rooker at the end of bright yes yes exactly that well let's let's just quickly talk about the end and because we're we're daring off now where we're okay well, you mentioned like significant um, other significant kills, and I'd love the the final kill when we've got, which is another cheeky nod to Superman, um, that we've got that uh, Tori attempts to actually <laughs> kill Brandon by the one thing that can harm him is the metal of which his own the substance of which his own ship is constructed. So she tries to stab him, and this could be our moment of, yes, she's our final girl. She's going to say the death. Nope. Oh, no. There's no hope or redemption. This is another thing I really like about Brightburn. It has the courage of its convictions. It says, yeah, we're going to do a nasty movie in which a superpowered individual fucks people up, and there will not be any redemption for this. So he... um, so. In retaliation for this, Brandon grabs his mum and flies up into the air, taking the time to smash through the roof of a barn so she's all, you know, bruised and cut up. And then he takes her up to a great height and drops her. One of the first appearances of Superman in Superman the movie is when he flies up out and saves Lois Lane, who's falling uh, with a helicopter, out of a helicopter. And so by having Tory you know, killed by being dropped like this. As there's no Kate, Kate Saviour catching you in midair, mother. Um, and I th- and then we've got a, well, again, it's a, it's a nod to Superman, I think, because you've got an airliner flying straight towards uh, Brandon. And thinking again about this being kind of a mid-budget film, I, it's nice, I think, that perhaps it could, they couldn't afford to show the you know, Brandon destroy that airliner, but we didn't need to. We saw its aftermath, and in our heads we think, oh my God, he just destroyed a plane, just like that. And the last image of Brandon, you know, sitting in this uh, ambulance, eating a chocolate chip cookie, looking the absolute picture of innocence, is kind of the film's, I guess, final sort of fuck you to all your beliefs in goodness and uh, people being nice and power being used for the right purposes. It's it's a funny thing because it's, although it's quite a gruesome film in places, it's often, it's got this, it's also quite very, very bleak and hopeless, but it's done with this sort of fun, cheeky, cheekiness to it, which is another thing I really enjoy about it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember when I saw this at the time, I was re- getting really, really sick of nihilistic endings, um, which has become a bit of a trope re- recently, and they still do it now. Um, you know, ultimately, most of what I watched was at least from the 80s when at least somebody got away scot-free, and, you know, I was starting to really get sick of that as a trope. And I don't like it in this either. I would have preferred... 
I would have preferred uh, a happier ending. Um, but yeah, it is what it is, really. Um, do you like the ending, Matthew, or you? Uh, the ending, I I like in that it, it feels like it's natural, uh, and and like you say, it does mess with those uh, very specifically that they are set pieces from Superman films gone by. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I think that it feels natural. It feels like it's a final play on those uh, those beats. So yeah, I just think I think it. I just don't really see how uh, there there is any way to to do this differently, uh, especially given that there is this final commentary uh, on the superhero genre at present day, how it goes into the credits, which all sets up that this is part of a wider universe and that there are more characters out there and that... Uh, that you've always got to be thinking of the sequel. Uh, so I think that's, yeah, I think that's the only way that it, it could be done, really. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't read the the final section. We've got this little point where Michael Rooker turns up as a online conspiracy nut. I read that the saying he was referring to multiple footage and it was all Brandon, not that it was multiple different um, super-powered monsters. But, hey, you know, all interpretations are interesting. Well, I, I, it did show uh, as one of the superheroes, the well, or supervillains, uh, the Crimson Bolt from uh, Super, one of James Gunn's earlier movies. Ah, right. Uh, yeah. So again, it, it it does that that shared universe crossover thing. Uh, but yeah, I, it was I, for, for my understanding of it, it was. Evil versions of the uh, the DC Justice League with uh, there was a Wonder Woman and an Aquaman uh, that were there. I, I guess the Crimson Bolt would be the uh, surrogate for Batman. But... No, there you go. Yeah, I, I mean we were we asked we spoke earlier about sequels. I don't I don't want to see a sequel to Brightburn because I feel that. If there were, it probably would have to turn things around because either you've got, right, so you've got a bunch, either one or multiple superpowered individuals who are just out for themselves and want to take the world. And the best case scenario for the world is either they fight each other and blow us all up or blow significant portions of themselves up. Or, of course, one of them has a change. If I says, no, I'm going to be good or some other Someone else who's superpowered comes to save, and it's like, no, I don't need that. I'm I'm okay. We're actually with the uh, the nihilistic ending, mm. and that's something I don't want a sequel to Brightburn, much as I enjoy it. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, right, well, let's let's move into the to the end bits then. Um, we'll have a quick look at Facebook and see if people have said anything. Uh, I think there's a couple of comments. Uh, Alistair said, Inter- interesting. I found it a bit too miserable and grotty. Uh, a bit like you, Mark. I'm not miserable and grotty, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm only joking. <laughs> um, Brian has said, I haven't watched it since its release, but I remember it being entertaining. As someone who has grown up with comic books, it also came across a little too derivative. It also maybe 
a little too short in that I feel it skips over things a little too quickly instead of exploring them. Um, yeah, I could agree with some of that. It's fair. Um, it probably could have run. Well, I'd say it could have run a little bit longer. Um, I don't know really because um, I must admit I've been in danger of while listening to you being more sold on it than I am. Um, we'll do our review bit now. Uh, so for those of you listening at home, we'll we'll drop our review thing. With it's usually a shit if it's not very good. Uh, ooh, it's spooky for sort of middle of the road and creative psychopath for. Well, the best it can be. Um, now I'll do my bit now. Because like, like I say, I think I've been in danger of being sold sold it because, you know, you've seen parts of it that, that I wouldn't have seen. And, and and I don't disagree that a lot of what you said is, is there, but I've, I've obviously had to watch it in terms of the way I would just watch a horror film. And it just doesn't, it just doesn't quite achieve why one it would want it to achieve it in terms of horror films it the, the scares are not there um brandon never at any point comes across as as intimidating to me which i would have i would have preferred some of that um you know and so i'm i'm not gonna i'm i'm not gonna go too deep into it so i'll just i'm i'm gonna give it a new it's spooky I, I think you've said a lot of, of what I'd agree with there in terms of where I've landed on it. I think I'm a bit more favourable than you from the off uh, and have been talked around a bit further uh, still. Uh, I mean, truth be told, Vincent, I could listen to you talk all day. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I think it, it it does just still oh, you. leave a bit for me to... Uh, that, that can't put it in that top bracket. So I'm saying who it's spooky as well. Well, I will say it's a creative psychopath because I think it's creative and it's leaning into the psychopathology. So it's a psych- creative psychopath for me. There it enough. does tick those boxes. I will allow that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, right. So let's get into the final slice of bread. But before we do... Um... There are T-shirts available if, if 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 you like the link somewhere on Facebook or just ask me and I can sort that out for you. Um, Patreon is out there, but I put a slight pause on it at the moment because we've been struggling to get any content on there, and so I'm not making people pay for nothing. Um, but it, it, it is there if you w- would like to have a look at it. Um, but we'll uh, we'll we'll review that in the new year and actually start uh, throwing some stuff out. Um, Matthew and I are going to have a bit of an AGM <laughs> or something along those lines. I don't know. Um, so yeah, let's get into this final slice of bread. The last few questions for Vincent. Um, One thing before you do that, uh, do you want to know about sandwich fillings? I haven't done that in a while. Um, yeah, go on then. What sandwich do you like? Okay. Um, I like a whole bunch of sandwiches, but I'm going to say one here that tends to be a bit controversial. I'm a big fan of, um, peanut butter and scrambled egg sandwiches. 
I must admit, I wasn't expecting that. Um, <laughs> no, that is, uh, it can be right by surprise. Yeah, I don't think we can condone that. Okay. Uh, is it properly horrific? Yes, <laughs> for sure, yeah. Uh, I normally just put blood in them, but I think from now on, yeah, peanut butter and... You see, I'm going to try it now. I like. Well, let me know things. what you think of it. No, if you end up liking it, then you're welcome. Yeah, actually, I won't because I don't like egg in sandwiches for some strange reason. I like egg. Uh, what about egg on toast or yeah. egg or toast in egg? I, the only way I'll have it is a is a soldier in a dippy egg. Okay. Um. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. No, I'm having that. Right. Anyway. <laughs> Oh, it's been a while since we've asked people their favourite fillings. We should bring that back. Bring it back for the new year. Yeah. yeah well, I've, I mean, I've set a, you know, a standard here. Like, this is the here's a weird sandwich filling. Let's see if you can get any weirder ones. Have we had any other weird ones? I can't even remember now. Um, I like beetroot in a sandwich. Is that weird? That's probably about normal, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Not pickled, though. I like the stuff that's not pickled. Um. Anyway, right. So, uh, what we're we doing? What is the worst horror movie you've seen? The worst horror movie I've seen, which is also one of the worst films, full stop, I have seen, is Rob Zombie's Halloween remake from two thousand seven. As said, uh, last year, I think it was. Yeah, I made a point of going through the of the Halloween franchise. <laughs> no, I lie. It actually was over a number of year, a few years, and. I actually paid money to rent uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween, and it was absolutely vile. I, yeah, movie. I got to the end of it, and I felt so dirty, incompetently made. But it seemed to actually taking a kind of pleasure in its cruelty, which I think is one of the worst things a horror film especially, can do to say like, hey, look at this, isn't it? And yeah, it's just, yeah, I my letter view of this, and maybe I'm being, you know, hyper, but I described that film as a crude, crass, garish, ugly, stupid, hideously directed, needlessly overwritten, tediously drawn out, painfully unscary, and straight up, painful catastrophe of a slasher that takes grotesque pleasure in cruelty. I didn't like it, in case that wasn't clear. <laughs> no, it's not. So not six out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> you can't give zero on Letterbox, but I did give it half a star. Oh, a lovely half star. Um, you can give it no review, but I suppose that doesn't really say anything, does it? Um, half star is pretty, pretty, pretty damning. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, so, well, let's 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 hit it with a polarizing. Then, what what is your favorite? Well, my favorite horror movie is one that not everyone would consider to be a horror movie, and I didn't for a while. Um, and then I thought, no, it is a horror movie, and I know this because the first time I saw it, it scared the crap out of me. <laughs> and uh, that is The Silence of the Lambs, which I have seen more times than I can remember. It is my fourth favourite film of all time. 
The last time I saw it, I reviewed it as an exquisitely crafted and magnificently tense nightmare of identities, traumas, transformations, the places we would rather not go. The Silence of the Lambs is my chef's kiss when it comes to horror and, for that matter, thriller. Call it what you like. It's a perfect movie. I argue with that. Yeah, I'll argue not, with any uh, of that. There, there will be no uh, Silence of the Lambs critique, even. Uh, <laughs> oh, critique is fine. Hey, if, well, if it does, hey, if it doesn't work for people, that's fine. You know, I'm not. No, it's, not, it's a rare film. It's perfect. I'm with you on this. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Um, yeah, I'm shutting down any uh, any bad mouth in Silence of the Lambs. Fair play. All right. Okay. You once tried to badmouth the Silence of the Lambs. I ate their kidneys with a nice amarone. It's a, yeah, it's a good movie. I like those books, actually. Um, and I prefer the books. But that's one of those things, isn't it? Um, right, so we'll, these last two ones are all lovely. What is a scary moment for a non-horror movie that you remember? Well, I'm actually not going to go with a scary moment. I'm going to go with several prolonged, several scenes, indeed, most of the movie, which is not, I don't think I could call it a horror film, but I certainly describe it as horrifying. And that is most of United 93. The, I mean, obviously being based on real events and being events that are still, you know, when it came out, that were only like five years prior and events that we had seen the aftermath of to get something which placed one so, you know, viscerally and intimately in a plane that has been hijacked and we know how this is going to end. Yeah, that was an absolutely ferocious, intense uh, um, multitude of scary moments in United 93. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing that uh, film uh, around the way when it first came out, knowing how how it went and still just being just being in the grip of it completely, uh, which with how tense and, and and like you say, frightening the film is. Yeah, I've heard of some people who've actually watched that movie on a plane, but I'm like, for fuck's sake, what are you doing? <laughs> well, tips on how to fight back for if it all goes wrong. Yeah, fair play. So the last thing is, if you could make a non-horror movie a horror movie, what would you choose? You know, I thought long and hard about this because there are so many potentials. But the one I've actually gone for, it just struck me the other day that this would be quite interesting. I was, I read this uh, meme about, which was about a somebody reporting to the police something that happened to them. And I just imagined, hang on, make that a horror scenario. And the police officer's taking down the notes and then asks, so you were beaten up. You were, you know, savagely beaten up by these four individuals. Yes. And they were uh, turtles? Imagine <laughs> Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles done as a horror film. I think the closest comparison would be Mimic, where you've got giant bugs attacking people. Now, I had to caution myself on that because... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles done like kind of like Mimic as a horror film. It wouldn't it shouldn't be directed by Guillermo del Toro 
because he makes the monsters the heroes, so the turtles would still be the heroes, like, say, in The Shape of Water, where you've got the Gill Man being that. But I would love somebody to turn the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles into something. A lot of the comic books that they originally started out, out of were at a much darker tone than what they've come to be. But it's a franchise that keeps getting reinvented. And, you know, like with, say, many a comic book and superhero characters that we have these what-if scenarios, imagine them being done as villains, as monsters, as something very, very nasty. Like, sort of like Mimic meets Alligator <laughs> would be, yeah, I think that would be pretty cool. Yeah, that sounds sweet. I like that one. Yeah. Make I'm it, mate. convinced because I love the turtles too much. I don't want to see them do bad things. Oh, um, fair play. Fair enough. Um, right. Well, uh, well, that brings us towards the end then. So, uh, before we close up, do you have anything that you would like to plug or talk about? Or yes, quite a bit actually. Um, if you'll forgive me for recommending the competition. Um, I ask, please, listeners, do check out my podcast, Invasion of the Poddy People, where myself and my co-hosts, James and Russell, talk about horror, about movie news, genre movie news. Uh, we offer reviews, we offer features, and we do recommendations of um, old, new, and something not a film. You can find Invasion of the Poddy People on the Not Just for Kids movie club feed. I can be found across the social medias at Dr. Gain. That's D-R-G-A-I-N-E. That is my handle on Instagram, Letterboxd, X, or Twitter, if you prefer, Blue Sky Threads. You can also find piece, uh, film reviews that I have uh, and commentary that I have written on such places as The Critical Movie Critics and The Geek Show, as well as my own blog Vincent Views where I also post links to my various podcast appearances so that's where you can find me excellent you'll have to send me those links and I will include them in the uh, show notes so people can find your uh, various various things um, and I'm sure they will after this episode um, yeah so well there you go then we've done it we've achieved another episode we've made another delicious horror sandwich um, it's all wrapped up, popped in a bag, so now you can get on your way, eat it at home in your car. I don't care where you eat it, just the restaurant's closing. Is it a restaurant? I don't know. Um, I was kind of imagining the diner. it is. Uh, yeah, the diner's closing, and uh, watch out for those lights. Yeah, I always sort of imagine it as being one of the fast food restaurants in Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. Uh, anyway, should we go? Uh, yeah, one. Right. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.